Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host. And I hope you've had a good week, as I have. Uh, didn't do a whole lot this week. Stayed busy, but didn't do a whole lot, to be honest with you. Uh, had a good time. Uh, went out and hiked a couple of days and got out in the woods, which is always my favorite thing to do. Um, also, the, it's beautiful in western North Carolina. Here we are in late October, and the leaves are just absolutely gorgeous outside. And so we were able to go into higher elevations, and it would look different there than it did down in the lower elevations, which looked – so you've got these layers of uh, beauty as you go from down around 2,000 feet uh, up to about 6,000 feet where we were this week. And so it was just extraordinarily – nice week to be out in nature and to to appreciate what's around us and and so we just had a really good week and then um spent some time last night with friends had dinner had a wonderful time it's always a great blessing to be with them always a lot of laughter a lot of serious discussion as well and a lot of it's just wonderful to have a group of people who love the word of god the word of god written and the word of god incarnate in Jesus. And so it's six weeks or so-ish, something like that, from um, the celebration of the Incarnation, where, well, the beginning of the, the look forward to the Incarnation when we start into Advent. And then for a long time, the, the mystery, the wonder, the, the importance, literally, of the resurrection kind of eluded me. You know, it's easy to get into Easter and, and Good Friday and, and know what to say and know what to think about those things, although we're never through thinking about them. There's still more to be revealed all the time. But but Christmas kind of always eluded me a little bit as like, you know, I, I get it. It's a wonderful thing that God became man and dwelt on the earth. Um, but, but the importance of the incarnation i think i missed for a long time by just focusing on the event itself what were the implications of the incarnation kind of just never really caught my attention and so more and more over the last 20 years or so i've become more fascinated by the reality of the incarnation the reality of god taking on flesh and dwelling among us in order that we might be reconciled to him that he takes fully the initiative and does these things. And so I've been thinking about that already, and it's partly because of the lessons today, and one of which is, in my mind, the most important maybe lesson that Jesus had to teach. And it's prompted by a question, actually. So the lesson, the gospel lesson, is Matthew 22, and it's verses 34 to 46. And it begins with, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Well, that begs context, because last week we were dealing with Pharisees asking Jesus a question, and they were asking about whether or not it was okay to pay taxes to Caesar. So what happened between that and then the reading today, that what did the Sadducees do? So what had happened was they came to Jesus. Now, the Sadducees are those who don't believe, among other things, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in heavenly beings. They don't believe in a lot of things. So, But they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This life is all. So you get what you can get. And I had a friend who used to say to me, see, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. I'm still rolling my eyes at that one. But he used to say it to me all the time. And so anyway, the Sadducees asked this stupid question about, Moses said if a man 
dies having no children, his brother must bury the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then, so in this instance, this example they give, they said this happened seven times over. Brothers died and the next one married and blah, blah, blah. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife shall she be? Jesus said, you're wrong because you don't know either the scriptures or the power of God in the resurrection. They don't marry or nor are they given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is God of the not God of the dead, but of the living. So he answered their question, but then he set them straight on their theology at the same time by proving from the Old Testament that there is a resurrection. God is the God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the living. So, and then what we get next in the lesson for today for us is after that, the Pharisees said, hey, we better come up with something for Jesus too, because he just defeated them like he defeated us on the tax question. So, now we got to ask him something else. So, and one of them, a lawyer, and that doesn't mean a civil lawyer. It means a religious lawyer. It means somebody who interprets the law. Um, Asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This is a, a sort of a, a typical thing at the time. If you read rabbinic literature, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely common to boil things down and try and get things like a, a, a Buddhist cone to try and refine things down to the simplest way of saying things. It's, it's sort of a rabbinic challenge. And so they asked, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And a second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's what I want to talk about today. The first one, when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, everybody there would have said, oh, absolutely. You know, that's, you know, that's not even a challenge to get to that. But then when Jesus adds, and a second is like unto it, in other words, what he's saying there using the Greek is, is to say these things are so alike that you can't separate them one from the other. These two things have to go together. They, they, you can't have one without the other. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. On, all these, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then he said, well, while you're here, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they, they said, oh, that's a slam dunk. He's the son of David. He's the one who comes from David's line, essentially. And he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him the Christ Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Because that's the way it worked. And the way Jewish thought went was the fathers were more important than the sons, no matter what the sons did. Then the greater is always the one from whom the child comes. He can never eclipse the father in certain kinds of ways. He can do greater things, certainly, but he can't call him, the father would never call the son lord so that was his argument there but i want to go back and and because he's just proving there you believe in the resurrection so who is the who is the christ and so the christ is one with the father and that in some ways 
that answer goes back and, and says something about the first question, the one that the Pharisees asked him, but that's not clear at that time. It just seems that Jesus is playing you know, question and answer with them. Oh, you asked me a question, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to give you an answer that you don't expect and that you are going to have to puzzle over because you're going to get it wrong. And But let's go back to the question and answer that Jesus gets, which is the, what's the great commandment of the law? I mean, nobody would argue that the most important thing that you could do is love God because everything else flows from the love of God. If you love God, then you will seek to please him. But Jesus doesn't add to that. He says the second thing is like the first thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a little bit of a puzzler too. How is loving the neighbor like loving the self? And it goes back to something I said a couple of weeks ago. And that is is that, that one of the reasons it's important not to create images of God one of the reasons is because it's a commandment not to do it. But there's two, in my mind, two different ways in, in which that can be a snare and a problem. The first is that we can worship that image because it's safer and easier to worship an image. And so the comment that I made then was is that, that Moses couldn't see God's face when he passed by. He said, you can see my back. And so the, there would be a huge temptation to create an image of God if he saw the, quote, face of God. So that didn't happen. But the other reason not to make an image of God is because he already has made one himself. So to create one on our own would be a sacrilege. That image is us. We are intended to be the image of God. Because of sin, however, it's very difficult to recognize ourselves or others around us as the image of God. Because of our sin of pride or our sin of you know, false humility, which can cause all manner of sin. It can cause sin like anorexia and alcoholism and um, this current thing with transgenderism and all that. That's all sin, and it's a sin of narcissism. It's a sin of confusion. It's a sin of looking at yourself too much and losing yourself in yourself and realizing you really don't know who you are apart from the one in whose image you were created. And so we then begin to cast about for who are we really? And we begin to come up with our own definitions and we begin to mar our bodies and mar our appearance to become like what we want them to be at that moment because the problem is is that all our judgments tend to be short term and so we make mistakes and we see in a mirror wrongly who we are because we're not looking in the mirror that is Jesus Christ we're looking in that mirror of narcissism which gives us false images so we're creating the image of God and so God says don't make images because I've already made one and so here when Jesus says that that the first commandment is to love God with everything you have and then the second is like unto it, inextricably tied with it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's because your neighbor is the image of God. And it's interesting the way that he says it, but it's biblical. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. It's simple as that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he doesn't say. Love your fellow Jews as yourself. Love your family as yourself. Love your wife as yourself. Love your children as yourself. No, he says love your neighbor 
as yourself? Well, that's an undefined term that becomes the kind of question that people, lawyers even, have to ask because it's, it's questions that come up in, in trials in Judaism, and that is, who is my neighbor? Remember that? Remember who asked that question? Remember what the answer to it was? The answer is the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan and the Samaritan who takes care of the one who's been beaten and robbed, of whom we know nothing. We don't know if he's a Jew. We don't know if he's a Samaritan. We don't know if he's an Egyptian. We have no earthly idea who the one who was beaten and robbed is. We know who the other one is. We know that he's a Samaritan. He's one who's despised by the Jews. And at the end, Jesus' question back to them as he tells that story is, is that who was the neighbor in that story? And the response is, I guess, the one who did good. And he says, go and do likewise. So the neighbor is the, the one who's created the image of God. He is one who needs you, anyone who needs you. You're not required or even commanded to do good to those just who love you and who are like you. He says, in fact, love your enemies. Love them all. Because they're all created in the image of God, whether they're your enemy, your friend, your ally your family, whatever. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's an incredibly important commandment because what it does is it's telling us that to open our eyes to the wonder of the creation around us, particularly in the face of those created in the image of God. And that our um, responsibility to them is the same as it is to him. You're supposed to love yourself. That's a difficult thing. But he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I would hope that most of us love our neighbor better than we love ourselves. But part of loving yourself is forgiving yourself for your own sins. It's taking care of yourself. It's seeking the best for yourself instead of the worst. And so we have that same responsibility towards our neighbors, those who are created in the image of God, because at some level we're all the same. We're all sinners in the sight of God. We, we need to be tender, merciful, and gracious with those around us, even those who sin against us, Jesus said, just like he was when he prayed from the cross for those who persecuted him, crucified him, mocked him, tortured him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's the world that's so marred by sin loses sight of that, and Paul has to point us in that other direction too. And he says we don't fight against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and all those things. And one of the toughest lessons to learn in life, and I learn it every single day if I'm paying attention, is, John, you're upset with somebody. You're fighting somebody. Why? You know that your fight's not against flesh and blood. It, there's a higher battle going on. We're waging a war against Satan who desires to divide us from one another, to separate us from God. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, but he also came to reconcile us with one another. Love, he said, was what was supposed to bind them together, love for one another. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And, and he wants to bind them in love, and in order to do that, he gives the Holy Spirit. The incarnation is an incredibly important thing, more than a concept. It's, it's Jesus coming to show us what the image of God should look like. 
if we're filled with his spirit and pursuing his kingdom and the glory of God first, then it looks like this. It looks like the healings that he does. It looks like laying down his life at the end. But the first thing required in order to do the healings and in order to lay down his life and accept the crucifixion and death is the coming to earth, the great condescension to become like us, become one of us and subject himself to us, live among sin when from before the beginning of time he had never known such a thing. Perfect communion with the Father who is sinless, perfect, righteous, holy, and loving. To leave that perfect, loving relationship aside and come down and dwell amongst the midst of the likes of us is incredible as an act of love for the neighbor. And the one who is not created but begotten of the same being with the Father, of the same substance as the Father, comes and brings that here, knowing he's going to be rejected, even by his own people. He's not going to be loved. He's going to experience hatred. He's going to experience all these things that he's never known. And he knows all this, and he lays all that down, and takes on flesh and comes here to perfect humanity through his sinless life. And so Paul understands that, I think, at a deep level. And he writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 8, our coming to you was not in vain, even though it's difficult for you. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, you were ready to share with, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If you want to know what it looks like for a person to love God and love their neighbor in the way that Jesus commanded, that's it. Paul going to the Thessalonians after he had not just been mistreated but beaten and put into prison in Philippi, as we see in the book of Acts, Paul could have said, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't need this. And he could have quit. He could have laid it down and walked away from ministry and walked away from people who are mistreating him. But instead, no, he goes to another place where he doesn't know these people because he sees those people as created in the image of God and he wants to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those people for the glory of God. He loved the Lord so much that he accepted whatever circumstances he was in because he knew who was in control. He knew who he served and he sought only to see God's glory. He sought to see God do wonderful things. And draw people to himself, just as Jesus had said he would do. And so Paul persevered in the work because he loved God. 
with all his heart, soul, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself, even the neighbor that he didn't know, the neighbor that he had never believed was his neighbor all of his life, the neighbor who was a Gentile, a pagan, an outsider, one of them. And time after time, after he too had been rejected by the Jews, he chose to go to the Gentiles, those whom he had never called neighbor, but in all his letters, he always referred to those in the church, whether they be formerly Jew or Gentile, as brothers. And it wasn't just words. Paul extended himself by going to these people, and he gave of himself, as he says. I, even though I could have asked, as an apostle, I could have demanded that you provide for me. He didn't. He continued to do his tent making, and he provided for himself because he loved God and because he loved those who were created in the image of God. He loved his neighbor as himself, whoever that neighbor might be. The claim of Christ on him showed him that he had previously been an enemy of God, even though he thought he was a friend of God, that he had been an enemy of Christ and an enemy of his cross. And so all men were his neighbors. That's a point of the first about six chapters of Romans is, is that we all have one thing in common. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in that, we are all one. That's the brotherhood of humanity. Those who were created in the image of God have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul didn't count himself better than anybody anymore. His thinking about everything was changed Largely, his thinking about everyone else on earth, all those who were not Jews. Paul's thinking changed. They, too, were created in the image of God and therefore people for whom Jesus died. But people for whom Jesus also came to this earth. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about today, and this may take a little longer than I wanted it to, but I don't, we'll see. <laughs> all I know to say is we'll see. That's the Old Testament lesson. It's Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 12. It's the death of Moses. He goes up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Mount Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And then the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the region, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. It's the promised land, Moses. Take a look. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, which is a land founded by Lot's daughter, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab outside Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. No one knows where Moses is buried. Mary, Moses is buried outside the land. He's buried in Moab. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. In other words, he died a natural death, but not really. He was perfectly healthy. He was a man who had not just perfect health, but, but health that transcended his age. There was a miracle about Moses. His vigor was unabated and his eye was undimmed, but he was 120 years old. 
but that was the time appointed for Moses. He was given everything he needed right up until the moment of his death in order to accomplish the mission that he had been given. He ran the race right to the end, and then God said, no more. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Moses consecrated and anointed Joshua to be his successor in the way Elijah laid his hands on Elisha and set him apart to take his role. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did him Joshua and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face none like him for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel Moses lived an extraordinary life he lived the first third of his life as a son of Egypt living in the house of Pharaoh, raised as the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter who found him and drew him out of the Nile. He had been partially raised in the beginning. He had been um, weaned from his mother, Sarah, who was his wet nurse as well. And then he became a child in the house of Pharaoh. And then before his 40th birthday, he made a choice, and his choice was to identify with the people of God, with the Israelites. He had a foot in each place. He had one foot firmly planted in the palace, one foot tentatively set in identification with God's people to be one of them. He was a man betwixt and between, and then he intervened between a slave master and a Hebrew slave, and killed the Egyptian and they buried him and hid the body. And then he attempted to intervene in a dispute between two Israelites and they said, were you going to do to us like you did to the Egyptian? We don't know what you are, essentially. We don't know whether to trust you or not. We don't know who you are. Maybe you're just a rogue. They said, who made you judge and ruler over us? And Moses knew then, I'm going to be in big trouble because I sided with the Israelites and I killed one of my, quote, fellow Egyptians, and then he left. And he went into the wilderness. And he spent the next 40 years in the wilderness serving his father-in-law, Jethro. God called him to come back at the end of those 40 years, and on his way back, something happened. God broke out against him on his way back to be the Redeemer of Israel, and was going to kill him, it says, in the wilderness as he's coming back because he hadn't been circumcised. So the question was, what are you? Are you an Egyptian or an Israelite? You've got to throw in your lot one way or another. And if you don't throw in your lot with my people, well, you're going to die like the Egyptians. And so Zipporah circumcises him there. And they go back. And then the next 40 years, he spends in the wilderness again, but this time as the leader of God's people because he had allied himself with God's people. And we see that alliance and the identification over and over again in the wilderness when God's people sin and Moses pleads on their behalf. Don't kill them. Don't kill them. Please don't kill them. I won't go if you kill them. I'm not going by myself. You're not going to start all over again with me because you already made promises to the forefathers, and I'm not greater than them. 
So now here Moses goes up and he gets to see this. And, and so then we all ask the question, well, that's not fair. Why does Moses not get to go? Well, it's because of his sin. Well, his, or his sins aren't that big a deal. Not compared to everybody else's. Well, we're not comparing him to everybody else. That's not the comparison. If you're going to be the Savior of Israel, you've got to be without sin. And that's the thing as Christians we need to see is that the greatest Moses was... He was not without sin, just as Elijah was not without sin. Elijah forsook the ministry he'd been given and ran into the wilderness, no less than Jonah did, ditching the job because it was too hard. Moses didn't follow the commandment of God here. God told him to speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. And it seems like an inconsequential thing, but it's sin. And we have such a low concept of sin that we say, well, that's not that big a sin, therefore he should be allowed to go into the land. People sin worse than him. They got to go into the land, but they weren't the savior of Israel. They weren't the people. They weren't the ones that the people had made an image to replace. Nope. You can't be that guy and sin. And so God buries him there. There's this tenderness in this thing of God burying him in the valley. I want to tell you a quick little thing here that points back again to this whole idea of the incarnation, the whole idea of Jesus. So the Jews read this story that I just read to you, and they say, you know what? It's weird. God says, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. And the first thing they realize is, that doesn't sound like Moses, that he went down without a fight. And so that the way that Midrash happens, it's sort of a gloss on Scripture. It's, it's filling in the blanks. The way that Midrash happens is, is, is that, that you see something that doesn't make sense to you like that, and you say, well, there's got to be a, an explanation for that. It's like when uh, Abraham takes Isaac on the mountain, and we know the end of that story. He's going to kill him, but God intervenes and stops that. Well, the next chapter begins with the death of Sarah, and so the question they see is what happened and so they write a midrash about what happened so here in this one and i'll tell you about that one some other time <laughs> but but so that's what happens and so god tells moses you're not going to get to see the you're not going to get to go in the land even though you can see it and then it says moses died and, and their, their first question is that doesn't sound like moses he went down without a fight so they fill in the blank, and those are called midrash. And, and there are multiple midrash. There's not a single definitive one, and so you'll understand that. There can be you know, any number of midrash explaining this gap, as it were. And so what happens is, is that, that you see these things, and you, it's okay to read them all and then try and glean something from them. I want to tell you about this a little for the next like two or three minutes. I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. So what they say is, is that Moses didn't want to die. That Moses pleaded with God that he wouldn't die. And he makes this long and elaborate plea, and it goes back to him saying exactly the question that I just posed to you, which is, wait a minute. You know, I understand why you killed Adam. He sinned. And then God says, well, look at Abraham. He did great things for me, and he died. And Moses says, yeah, but he brought it Ishmael, so he ruined the world. And then what about Jacob, and what about Isaac? And so Moses always has a retort for that. But look what they did, look what they did, look what they did. I'm special. 
There's a special pleading in this case, and that is that I'm special. I've done more. I've given up more, and I've served longer than all of them and under much more difficult circumstances. And finally, God says, that's enough. I've had enough of that. And Moses says, well, not quite. Why don't you let me just live over here on this side of the Jordan? I don't have to go into the land. I just don't want to die. And then why don't you let me just, just let me live like one of the beasts of the field? Because that way you don't have anything to explain about this you know, thousand-year-old man. What, what about let me live as a bird of the air? How about that? And so God keeps telling him no, and then he finally explains to him. He says, what are you afraid of, Moses? What's the real issue here? And supposedly Moses says, I'm afraid of the angel of death. He didn't have the faith in the resurrection. So God explained it to him, showed it to him, and taught him about it. And then Moses accepted it, and he said the last thing that he says apparently to the people, according to this Midrash, is, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, a people saved by the Lord. He then bid farewell to the people, weeping aloud. He said, Dwell in peace. I shall see ye again at the resurrection. He accepted the truth of the resurrection, but the reality is, is that it's not a failure of faith in that instance because he'd never seen resurrection. Nobody had. But what's interesting is before all this happens, the, the, Moses' response to the Lord is, to whom shall I go that will now implore mercy for me? What he's saying is that I have prayed for everybody else, but there's nobody to pray for me. Then comes the incarnation. It's the same as with Job. Who says that he knows that in his eyes he will see God? There will be one who will come and take up his case. He believes in Jesus, even though he's never seen him. Moses, according to this Midrash, believes even though he's never seen. It's only later that Jesus comes and reveals all, but God chose those men with special favor to know the truth of the resurrection. But the reality of the incarnation takes on different significance when we think of it in those terms, when we think of it in those ways, that those who came before died with a different kind of hope than we have. They died with the hope that wasn't certain. We, however, have a faith that is certain because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who came in the image of God to show us the perfect image of God, to love us as our neighbor. And then he says, go and do likewise. The importance of the incarnation, it teaches us that in the face of the other is potentially the face of Jesus. Have a blessed week. I hope that, that the Lord blesses you and shows you in the face of a unique and different neighbor than you normally love. I hope he gives you the blessing of someone to love who doesn't look like you, doesn't sound like you, but who bears the image of God and he allows you to be the one he chooses to love that neighbor this week. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding and I'm John Green, your host. Again, you can check the next to the box here and you'll see the Facebook page for Faith Seeking Understanding. I'd love to interact with you there. If you have any questions, comments, or prayer requests.